The Middle East has a new story to tell, and this is From Mina to the World. And I'm your host, Amir Farha. I've been investing in startups since 2005. More recently, I co-founded Beko Capital and now Co2 Ventures, a seed stage VC focused on investing in incredible founders in the Middle East at the earliest stages of their journeys. I've been involved in backing extraordinary companies founded by amazing people. And over the years of investing, I've found that I love understanding the human side to entrepreneurship. I love hearing the stories from people that faced and surmounted huge challenges. And I love championing underdogs who are against the odds of success. For the longest time, the MENA region has been misunderstood. Today, we are creating a new narrative, a new voice that harnesses our strengths and is a driver of our future. The Middle East has a new story to tell, and this is From MENA to the World. So today we have a really special guest, dear friend of mine who I've gotten to know over the years, an entrepreneur who I invested in years ago, Rami Sanlan, who was the founder of WrapUp. WrapUp is a voice transcription software that was uh, acquired by a company called Voicea. And then that was acquired by a company called Cisco. And Rami works now at Cisco as head of acquisitions or helping with acquisitions and strategy. He's going to share a lot of his learnings. It's been a journey with WrapUp. I can tell you that. One of the first companies to really innovate on a global scale. And you're going to hear about his initial forays into entrepreneurship and his mindset, as well as the learnings about exits and insights he's gotten from leaders that he's worked with and the co-founders relationships he's had in the process. So I really hope you enjoy it. First, Rami, thanks for coming on this show. Um, you're someone I've known for years, and I can't wait to, for everyone to hear your your story and maybe just have a really cool conversation with you. So, I'm going to start this off, and I'm going to ask you, like, you know, if you had to like think of words that would adequately describe yourself, mm. what would you use as your some words that would maybe give an idea of what kind of person you think you are? I would say I'm, I'm an intuitive person that likes new ideas and new things. I'm non-linear. Like I think of things in quite sporadic ways and like push a giant set of thoughts forward, but it's not like in a very linear approach. But I do like like the analytical nitty gritty. So I'm kind of a mix of like open-minded thinking and like abstract. Um, but I, I know that the value is like really in, you know, kind of core engineered, you know, thoughts and execution. So. I try to marry those two uh, together. Where do you think that comes from? Like if you look back in your life, like if you take it through, was it like, were you like a math, you know, whiz growing up or you engineering is something that you, or science maybe, maybe is something that you yeah. took a liking to? I definitely, like on the math side, it definitely was like, uh, was keen to learn a lot. I, uh, you know, would compete with my friends. I think one year, you know, I was the winner of like the math competition at school. I think it was in seventh grade. And then my best friend also had, you know, won it the next year or whatever. I try to find the easiest way to do certain things. There was a lot of amazing ways to like solve certain things. But as you reach certain levels of like complexity, you're really dealing with the abstract. I couldn't fathom how this type of math would be applied, right? With irrational numbers and whatnot. So it's funny that like in the abstract, like whether it's art or music, I enjoy that. But in a, in a concrete way, when you start talking about abstract concepts, I couldn't put my finger on it. So I moved more towards the physics and engineering. And even that at some point, 
it gets too abstract. By my third year of university, when we're doing vibrations analysis with multivariate calculus. So you two- were doing engineering in, in the university? Yes, yeah, so I did mechanical engineering. Okay, so you knew you wanted to do that? Like, was it- I knew I wanted to do something technical, yeah. And do you think, like, you might be asking, like, you grew up in the U.S., right? So how much of an influence did, let's say, your, your dad or mom have in your, let's say, emotional development, let alone, like, these choices, like, you know? becoming an engineer or no it was huge i mean when you're early on your your parents kind of guide you to do everything right in yeah. life my dad was always very business oriented i mean i come from a long line of entrepreneurs so he had his own uh, bakery business it was a wholesale bakery mid-size one of the larger ones on the east coast in the u.s he came over from tabuk when my sister wasn't born yet so my older sister so i'm the second you know, they were running a grocery store in Tabuk in Saudi. And then they came over to the U.S. And, you know, like many Lebanese, you know, tried to immigrate, right? Yeah. And, and escape Lebanon from Saudi to the U.S. Was a, was a tough move. But I remember he told me he went to like Ellis Island, tried to find like his grandfather that we knew went to, you know, the U.S. And I mean, they did everything to become American and eventually found some genius grant that he got some AUB professor to like sign off on that he was, you know, an expert in his field, whatever, something that they don't even offer anymore, I think, to eventually gain citizenship. Oh, no way. Yeah. So there was always like this background of like making something happen out of nothing that I think my parents and anyone that kind of had that Lebanese diaspora experience that like, you know, came to the world with. So from that perspective, like, it was a very nurtured environment for me to go out and do things. Like in the summer, my mom was very heavy on like athletics and like making sure we had like tennis, basketball, you know, karate, whatever. And my dad always said, like, I need to work. So I remember working at the bakery at 13 years old, you know, packing baguettes into, you know, large, you know, industrial style uh, bags and stuff and, and shipping them off. With like, you know, the, the Mexican, you know, co-workers with me and making, you know, I, I clocked in, clocked out. I made minimum wage. And that was the first I, time you started working. That was the first time I started working. Yeah, yeah. it was at like 12, 13. And your dad, you're, you're, you weren't, you were born in the U.S. So your dad was in Saudi. You weren't there, obviously. No, yeah. When my sister was born in New York and then we moved down to Washington, D.C. Um, so he had a retail spot in uh, New York. Uh, and he did kind of serve like hotels and stuff like that. Um, and then he kind of had both in DC to start, but then moved purely to the wholesale because the unit economics were, were just much better. Now, now you can say that. Yeah. At 13, you're like, okay, sure. I'll yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so, so that kind of like DNA was there. And that obviously allowed you to be a bit more, uh, I guess, entrepreneurial at a young age. You're, you're exposed to so many things you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of nature and nurture as well. Like I, as I was speaking, I'm remembering like some of the earliest, I was always negotiating. I, I remember my uncle was also like a pro, you know, serial entrepreneur who, who runs Mates.ae here. He was always around. We'd always talk business. But even when I was like five years old, I have a distinct memory of like them trying to get rid of us and saying like, go pick up, you know, the, the pine cones in the backyard, you know, get be busy and I'll pay you for it. And I remember like I came back with all these pine cones and he gave me a dollar and I like argued with him. Like I was like, I just worked for, you know, an hour and I was like five or six years old. I know for a fact because that house we moved out, you know, at, at around six or seven. 
I just have a distinct memory of like trying to haggle with him and the parents kind of being surprised that's that hilarious. I was doing that. So there is a bit of nature and, and that's, that's always there. But then obviously the nurture is huge, right? So I think I started my first business initially converting our home movies for like video camera, you know, experience. I always like documenting things. I think it's really, really interesting to go back. Like I remember recording my voice and listening to it, especially when your voice is cracking and kind of being surprised by, you know, what it sounded like. So yeah, when we got into like home movies, we'd always have these home movies and we'd watch them and the connecting cameras like chaos. So it, you know, we would not watch as many movies because of how complicated it was to get that whole process set up. So I started to look online and found a way to convert, you know, home movies to DVDs. And I remember trading in my GameCube at the time because I wasn't, I mean, I, I had video games, but I wasn't a huge gamer. And my dad encouraged me. He was like, if you trade in your GameCube for the money to buy the, you know, the USB, I'll buy you a computer for you to do it. And I was like, that's a great deal, yeah. you know? Like, <laughs> so from a very young age, I think first I converted our movies. And then I realized when I was working this summer in uh, my uncle, the one I was telling you about earlier, his computer repair shop, that some people were calling in were like, hey, I want to convert home movies to DVDs. And so my mom helped me design a flyer. She was getting into Photoshop and everything at the time. And I went door to door and I, in my neighborhood and I started... Selling that, selling that service at $50 a, a pop. So I got my first view into like value-based pricing. These are memories, right? Yeah, yeah, and exactly. so I remember putting that into the, you know, the advertisements and thinking through, you know, how all of that worked and what people think about when they're making a purchasing decision, you know, and, and why would they want to do this? Oh, it's a hassle to plug in your, your camcorder TV. Oh, you want this memory to last forever, right? And so that was really my first foray into thinking about what makes a business work. Yeah. And I always was enamored by that from, from that day on. Choosing engineering, mechanical engineering, I think that's, that probably gives you a lot of, uh, helps you build on how you think, that's your mindset and how you solve problems. I'm sure it had an impact. I always ask, I always am curious how people end up choosing their degrees because like at a young age, you really don't know much about yourself, right? Yeah. Even though you've sort of explored like did your tone sort of this new, this business that you, that you did on the side, like you're still figuring stuff out in life, right? So what do you remember about that decision? Like, is it, a, you know, what, what made you go down that path? I mean, it's the typical, like, uh, Lebanese or Arab parent, like, you need to be a doctor, an engineer, you know, or a lawyer or whatever it was at the time. And I really liked computers. I was working, you know, I built my first computer hardware. I mean, it wasn't, it was amazing to me to see the inside of a computer. Eventually, I managed to, like, build a computer from spare parts that I ordered online. and, And then I built a laptop from, you know, recycled parts from the computer repair shop. And I thought I wanted to do computer engineering for sure. Then you get to, you know, university. I didn't actually get into the engineering department, but because I had spent six months in AUB and I was kind of leveraging this whole, there was a war at the time in the summer of uh, 2007 in Lebanon that I had to come back. I had delayed my, you know, acceptance by a year for Maryland and I had spent six months in AUB. I was going to spend a year. I came at the six month mark. I didn't know that. Tell me about it. So you went to study, you went to AUB. Yeah, I originally went to AUB because I wanted to have, you know, a nice experience. I had a few friends of mine that I grew up with in the U.S. that were going to spend that year with me in AUB. 
I always say, like, I grew up in the U.S., but I went to a French school because I realized when I got to university that I really was only as American as, like, you could, you know, tell from my accent and maybe some of my social norms. But, like, in terms of culture, experiences, what I look for in life, it was quite different. And that was exciting, right, to experience the American lifestyle. But I grew up in a multicultural French educated system. All my friends I've known since I was like, you know, maybe six, seven, eight years old. Uh, we have stories of like biting each other, you know, that are like in our in our history. Yeah, everyone's from a different background: Tunisian, Armenian, African, all around the world. French, obviously. And so, yeah, I didn't have a traditional kind of upbringing. On the Arabic side, you know, my parents really tried uh, wholeheartedly to to get us to learn Arabic. We went to, you know, Sunday school, we went to Arabic school. Yeah, same here, man. Uh, Tuesday nights and Saturday mornings. Yeah. It, I mean, and you can only get so far. I mean, we had private lesson once a week. I learned Arabic through sound as much as I tried to read. You're not immersed. So AUB for you, you were like, okay, I want to go. Because normally people from the Middle East generally go to the U.S. to study, right? For, right. And you were like, okay, I'm going to go for the Yeah, because I spent every summer in Lebanon. Okay. And Lebanon was, you know, just an incredible you know, place to be yeah. in my youth and, and, and teenage years, like when you're going out, you're, I mean. Okay, so you knew your, yeah, yeah. I knew my way around. And it was just an amazing opportunity to be with close friends as well. But also like, yeah, get back to my roots, learn Arabic properly. You know, my parents had just moved to Dubai. And so I was, you know, next door. And it just made a lot of sense at the time. Then you went back to the U.S., you said. Yeah, so I cut my stay short. I went back to the U.S. There was some glitch in the system because of how I kind of came in. And I just remember like going to the engineering school and being like, no, no, I'm accepted into the engineering department. And kind of like that headstrong Lebanese. I remember landing in the U.S. and thinking I've really changed because I forced my way into the engineering school without ever being accepted. And they had like a blank slate. And they're like, oh, but what was your major? Like, what was your actual engineering degree that you wanted to get? Is it mechanical? Is it computer? And I had to answer on the spot. And so originally I put computer engineering. I went to one computer engineering class and I wanted to like shoot myself. It was, I think one of the biggest travesties in today's world is the way computer engineering is taught in school. And you realize it when you start a startup and you hire your first like computer engineer from university. They don't know anything. They, I mean, they barely know the basics of what we need in day-to-day kind of coding life. And it's so theoretical and it's so like they started like the bits and the bytes and I get the I get the reasoning, but I just couldn't I couldn't grasp the yeah, second computer science. So I can tell you it's not an easy degree and it's a lot of theory. Um, you don't come out with let's say you know life uh, understanding. You come out with these tools and then you have to figure out how they apply in life and it takes a bit of time. Most people in those let's say Degrees in general, at least in my day, were, were, you know, not necessarily the most social people, right? So it's probably difficult for you to, maybe when you were there first class, you're like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not down for this. Let me go to mechanical engineering. Yeah, especially it was physics. It was something I could understand, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, motion. It was cool. And it was also, the one thing they said is it touches everything. You want to get into computers, you can do like PCU heat transfer and all this other stuff. Yeah. You obviously went into consulting when you came out of, uh, what was it? Yeah, so I graduated and um, I went into consulting. I got a minor in like something called the Living and Learning Program, the Hinman CEOs. 
which was basically like a minor in entrepreneurship, technology entrepreneurship. But I lived with like-minded people that wanted to start businesses. And so we had a few like forays again, like business plans. And, you know, I think we had like a TV reselling business at some point. We had like 20 TVs in my living room. Um, Testing ideas, basically. Yeah, like a bunch of different things at the time. And, you know, most fail. But yeah, there was at least that experiential, you know, work which you're doing over and over again i haven't found anything that you know made me money i tried stand-up comedy for a bit and my mom and dad kind of freaked out at that one and then uh i made my way into bain um through several interviews and kind of also a little bit of like pushing and pulling and going a little bit outside the system i always find a way to move things that i shouldn't move i mean i had a horrible gpa Never follow the rules. Like, you know, 3.0 GPA. Bain doesn't even look at, you know, your CV if you're yeah, not from Harvard with like X, Y, and Z. So how did that happen? Network, uh, family, friends, um, did well in the interviews. I just remember the last interview, I think the guy hated me because he, he knew my background. Was, Why are we even talking to this guy? And then managed to get like a call with the managing director, like the original founder. And I just remember, yeah, he asked me point like, why are your grades so bad? And I was like, because I focused on other things. Like, honestly, I think academics only gets you so far. I think engineering in particular, like it's kind of like math earlier on in life, like it reached a point where I'm studying the vibration of an engine with multivariate calculus. And if it moves an inch to the left or an inch to the right, and computers are doing all this right now. And I really didn't see the purpose of going so deep. So I went more broad and kind of thought through different things. And he liked that answer and he kind of made the okay to bring me on. So you get into, obviously, Bain, I think, uh, one of the best firms out there. But I guess, you know, first step into some of these, uh, some people's lives, most people's lives, actually, consulting, banking, and, you know, still figuring out what you want to do in life, right? It's a good stepping stone for that. And then, you know, I'd love for people to hear how you came up with wrap up in the story there, because it was through, while you were at Bain, right? And, and um, I'll let you take over, but. You know, when you think of a structured learning environment, high octane, you're giving constant feedback, like almost on a weekly basis. So you're adjusting, you know, regularly, you're given a mirror, you're talking about subjects you don't know, and you need to become an expert on very quickly. And they give you the tools and the ways of thinking. It's very similar to engineering, except applied to the business and strategy world. It was like one of the most exciting things in the early phases. And then having, you know, Arabic as a background and being in, in countries that are emerging, you actually are given a step up from other regions where you're talking directly to the CEO, you know, year one and giving your, you know, feedback on something you've built or whatever. But, you know, over time, you start to repeat the same processes and you say, okay, I'm done learning this thing. I've learned, you know, I've learned internal, external politics. I've learned, you know, business strategy. I've applied it in many different fields. And yet I'm being pigeonholed into what the client wants, right? So I've been on a project for a year and a half and I'm not really learning much more. I've made me coasting, but I think I'm ready to leave. And before I went to Bain, I had done my GMATs and I had a good score and it was a debate, right? Like, do I take that score and go to, you know, one of the top MBAs in, in the world and kind of continue down that maybe more of a traditional path and that MBA would give me ability to kind of venture out or do I go down the entrepreneurial path? And so my wife, who had already started a business, I would say that was my first startup by, you know, by virtue of, we weren't married then, but 
we're engaged and, you know, I helped her a lot with the menu and it was a restaurant business. It's not very digital, but there was some digital elements. I started to get, you know, a little bit involved on, on that. And it was interesting. Um, but the, the reason I bring her up is like, she was kind of the biggest push towards why do you want to go do an MBA? It's like, I want to do an MBA to meet people to start a business. It's like, just start a business, right? Like you don't need an MBA and you don't need to pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to, you know, go out and start a business. You can use that money and, and go start a business. And so I had been, you know, I have a laundry list of ideas and I had been dabbling with one for a while, creating the deck and, you know, being very consultancy about it. And it was called Globio. It was like a mobile live streaming platform. I had built like interfaces that were like around the, the map being kind of the, the way you browse through videos, not just the feed. And around that time, Meerkat, launched and uh forget the other one that twitter bought for 20 million dollars boom right out the gate they were integrated with twitter and they they were purchased so i went to my first hackathon i said you know i gotta go and find developers this is what i need to do um and this is kind of what i recommend for most people to do is like take a bite-sized amount of what you think to be true like i believe globio is going to be a success i just need to find developers and go test like the theory so i went to this hackathon which is the new thing to you go, you pitch ideas as a group. If enough people believe in your idea, um, you recruit developers, you recruit different people to, you know, within 24, 48, you know, different timeframes, create a demo and a launch deck, let's say, of what you want to launch. And Globio was my first choice. I had been working on it for, let's say, a year and a half, just different, you know, views and thinking. And here's what I want the product to look like. And yeah, that 24-hour period probably taught me more than the year and a half. First of all, we didn't build anything technically, unfortunately. But even on the, I remember Tarek Amin uh, was there. He was probably the first guy that was you know, mentoring me back then. Just thinking through like, how do you launch a social media you know, platform? And what is going to get like content on there? You have a two-sided problem. You need content and you need viewers. And how are you going to get both? And you know, I remember thinking through Meerkat and these guys, they had really thought through filling one side with a, with Twitter, right? When using your Twitter feed and your Twitter user base and everything you have on Twitter as like your core social media. Uh, and then the content was all they needed to focus on. And so I remember thinking through all these different paradigms that, you know, technology was enabling and what's going to make one successful versus the other. It was the first time I really put it beyond like I have an idea and I drew a nice drawing to launching, ex- executing, and really understanding what it takes to do that. So then when I won, I think, second prize, there was no money. I think it was like, you get housed in you know some area for some period of time, whatever. I was like, I need developers for Globe. Housed in some area in South It was like the Hamdan Innovation oh, Fund. Okay, okay. And it was like, you get an office space, and something like that. I just remember thinking, I need developers for Globio. Globio is super complex. It's going to be a billion-dollar startup. But I can't build it in a hackathon. So I'm going to take another idea from my list of things that I needed. And one of them was, you know, I was in these meetings, back-to-back meetings. At Bain, I had four hours, like a performance improvement program that I had, you know, at an oil and gas firm. And it was just like four-hour blocks of meetings where I had to summarize, you know, how they're going to improve their processes, what are the issues, blah, blah, blah. And that's right, the minutes. And I remember being up to like one, two in the morning and just like looking at my horribly written notes, you know, people that are more abstract have horrible handwriting usually. 
I mean, I got it done, but I really thought of something that could just record the meeting. I, I didn't even want the AI. Or any, I just wanted to tap a button every time something important was said and then leave a marker and be able to go back to that, write up my notes, send an email. That's what we built. Um, I went to the hackathon. I met Ayushin Rishav, which was, it looks like fate now, right? I mean, they, they had been working on a social media location-based idea that they showed me when we were still like pitching our ideas in the early stages. And I was like, you're the ones, like, I need you, <laughs> you know, like, come, we'll work. We made it work. And then I realized, like, I could go after this pie-in-the-sky social media platform that I have no clue whether it'll work or not. Or I can look at risk and understand, like, businesses have meetings. Meetings are where a lot of money is being spent and decisions are being made. And businesses have money to spend on services that make them more efficient. Um, and so that was my first foray into the realization of what all VCs in the world now realize, which is SaaS, when executed properly, is extremely profitable. Um, and so, yeah, I decided, you know, let's go forward with this. What I appreciate is I remember when you, because you won the, the hackathon yeah. with that idea. And, and I remember seeing it online somewhere. I don't remember where. And then I was like, the hell is this wrap-up thing? Because it was like, even the name, I'd love to hear how you came up with it, but, but besides the point, you know, we obviously do a lot of meetings as VCs and we'd be like, okay, we would love to have something um, that would capture the the audio but transcribe it in a way where it's easy to search and find it. I think when we saw the value proposition, it was it was clear to us that this is something interesting. And then that's when we, we got together. I think it was, an, I, remember, I remember the first pitch and uh, with you, I think it was just you and I. I think Ayush may have been there the first time as well. Uh, I'm not sure, but it was really exciting to see. So one of the things that, that I think about when I look at wrap-up is like the idea of, you know, people say that first ecosystems are generally copy models of other business, of other markets, and they, they build them out. And I think in this case, it was one of the few attempts at really innovating from a region where innovation doesn't really happen so much. Did that ever occur to you when you first started or were you just sort of uh, building on the momentum of finding these two amazing co-founders and some semblance of an MVP that, that people were excited about? And so you just kind of went with it or was it how much thought did you think put into the... No, I mean, my ethos is like I really wanted to do something that didn't exist before. I find it much more interesting, I'd say at the time, to do something groundbreaking and fail, right? than to make some money copying someone else. I, I do believe there is a lot of value in like, let's say implementation innovation, execution innovation, right? Like a Kareem. Oh, business model innovation. Right, yeah, story. like Kareem has done incredible Absolutely. adoption to what this market needed and how to grow and work with governments and, and that served them extremely well. But at the time, maybe I was a bit naive and kind of thinking, I'm going to change the world. You know, that's what I really wanted to do is like, there was something before and I want to apply what I believe is good, you know, thought and intellect to an innovation that would actually change the way people do something for the better. And so that was, that was my ethos. Okay. So then when you look at it, like in hindsight now, and you think about the journey, because remember we've had many back and forth at some point, I think the struggle, if you allow me to say, is like figuring out which market to target because the application of that technology can apply from schools, law firms, VCs, salespeople, and eventually we found our place. But I mean, that was kind of 
quite a big challenge. So I, I would love to sh- if you share insights in the journey there because I yeah. think that would be useful for a lot of entrepreneurs who are trying to innovate. So we had our first meeting after I had already been through a three months like pre accelerator mm-hmm. where they ask you like you know who are your target customers who are you know do your MVP and and so we did like a round of that. And, and we had done a round of that in the hackathon, and then we were doing a three-month round of that culminating, you know, in a San Francisco one week that, like, you go and you pitch. And, and so we were, like, kind of going through, you know, preschool, middle school, high school of startup, you know, dumb. And at the same time, I knew nothing about tech. Like, for everything that I thought I knew, like, I didn't know about code. And, and about like, you know, GitHub repositories and APIs. And, and it was amazing to work with young guys that I thought were super green, but like knew so much. And every time we would go to talk to like, you know, industry experts, we were pretty on par with like the technology we were using. And, and you know, they picked up machine learning very, very quickly and, and many of the things we did. So when we got to the stage of looking at product market fit, and I think this is what we're talking about now. I mean, we had a verbal agreement with you, I think in November twenty. 15 to, you know, put in 300,000. If we can close out a larger round was your goal. And that was what was going to get us to leave San Francisco, which we had a few accelerators waiting for us and come to Dubai to build this thing. And we had the same mindset, right? We're going to export innovation out of somewhere that's used to importing innovation. We focused a lot on product. So the first thing we did was because I was still learning and because we kept thinking mm, that next and people told us it's never that next feature that's going to do it. There was a lot of things we didn't have. I mean, we went from a button to a search and transcription functionality. And then the search and transcription functionality, we realized, okay, that's really cool, but what's going to be applied to? And so we kind of went back and forth between product innovation and use case application. And so after the search, we started focusing with customers and really thinking through like, okay, here are some people that are ready to deploy with us, Emirates Airlines, right? Like, what is it that they're looking for and how can we build it? How can we make it more useful? And essentially, we we couldn't really lock in. Like, we were like, okay, maybe we want project management meetings. Maybe this is only for decision-making meetings. And meetings are a lot more ephemeral. They're a lot less structured than you would want. Initially, I started to think that's just the region. You know, my Bain days were very organized. But then I started to really even beta test with Bain. It's like they don't have time to learn something new. And so the button, like I'm just saying, just hit the button. Like every time you want to just hit the button, you can listen to it. And it's like they'll try it if they're your good friend or whatever. But like no one wants to hit that button. They kind of just search. And then when the search maybe doesn't work once, they'll throw it away. And so we incrementally added more and more product features with usage testing. And we added like, you know, at, at some point there was an inflection point. I think it was, uh, you know, going back to the U.S. for different things. I think we had one, we closed our round officially with you in June 2016. And at the time we had been to like an MIT conference in Saudi. We had gathered like 500 startups and other people to finally invest with us. And that was like our big win, Right. But really all we had was like a demoable product that could transcribe and, and highlight and search, but an idea and some intent to, you know, kind of pilot yeah. from larger companies. And, you know, you're telling me like, how do I look back on it now? And maybe jumping a bit forward, but like, I don't know how you invested in wrap up. Like, I don't know if I would have invested in wrap up. I don't have a fund, you know, necessarily like a larger amount of money to be, but I'm, I'm much more leaning towards like, applications that I can understand their dollar value very easily 
than pie in the sky, you know, kind of ideas. So in that sense, like I commend you guys for like really thinking this is the time we can do something like this. These people have the right sauce to go out and build something. I think it's, it's the last part. It's, it's all about the people. I think what I saw and what we saw when we, we, we met you was the combination of you being sort of very pragmatic, very thoughtful and, and, and structured in your approach. Then you have two engineers who are kind of like, you know, mavericks, I would say, like a bit more, mm-hmm. less structured. And so the combination was was exciting, but also the, the, the hunger and the ambition to really try and innovate. So look, if it was, a, I think check size and round size doesn't matter. This was like a, a at the end of the day, a shot. That's how these investments typically work, where if you got that customer base, because I remember every conversation we'd have, there would be a new use case that would emerge. Right. You know, like events, I think at some point you were going to record events. And right. Happen. And then, then you had obviously like the, I think a couple of banks interested, then you had the Emirates Airlines, then you had sales IT massive, uh, you know, conglomerates looking at these the technology. So, which was exciting, but also I could see it being like, where do we go? Yeah. Where do we go? And, and the product I think was in terms of development was really exciting. Every, yeah. every, every release you would guys would do, you'd be on it. And, and given the limited amount of capital today, that if you look at today, like that really yeah. didn't raise that much to get to a product that I think was pretty solid. And to your point, why do we invest? But also I, I could imagine it being a, challenge for you when you had to go out and raise more money yeah you know that, like in the region at least you know and i think uh, you were do- doing your travels to the u.s and coming yeah. back and that was positive so we we did a we did a after that raise we went in the spring or in the fall essentially a few months later we had money we're the big guys in dubai it was a large round for the time yeah, yeah the time, exactly and you know very everyone was very impressed and wow we're you know, and I, I, I knew like, hey, we needed to bring everything down and be a lot more humble and, and go on and execute, right? But we could finally start hiring, you know, serious developers. We can get an iOS app. We can, you know, build a web application. Going back to like the strength of this team was definitely in the co-founders and in Ayush and Rishav's ability to like build things. I mean, it was incredible. And to this day, I look at, you know, developers with an expectation of like, if they can perform at that level or not is to me whether they're a good developer or not. Like, they were very execution-oriented. Impossible was just a temporary, you know, position for them. You know, it's, it's not possible. Next day, hey, I got this random thing kind of working in the way you, you know, wanted to get it to work. And so it was an amazing relationship where, like, ideas could actually go out and get executed. But we needed to kind of formalize that structure. And again, we're learning everything as we go, yeah. right? So productizing your your execution strategy is really important, like your dev cycles, what you're delivering. And so that was a learning curve for us to do. And I think we did a pretty good job and we always went online and learned from the best and whatnot. But there was always something we're building, which was great. And it kept momentum conversations alive with customers and with yourself. But when we got to you know, San Francisco, six months after, you know, we had already built like a product, we're going to launch this thing. We had a scratch code. You know, you get a free access. I had designed this whole marketing strategy at um, TechCrunch Disrupt. I think you had another company there. Mikey. Yeah. yeah, Mikey that got on stage and got like, I mean, you know, a huge amount of volume. We were down there nitty gritty, you know, giving everyone cards and stuff, meeting VCs. And just like, I think we got like, you know, maybe 300, 400 signups, but like mainly because I like literally put the iPad in their face and like made them sign up. But like, the follow-on from that event was very low, right? 
And so we had a lot of learnings from both the VC conversations we had on the product in terms of really lasering in on a use case, but also some of the product features that we could add on to there. We started incrementally looking through those. And I think we had a session with you where we looked at the matrix of like use cases and like what, you know, I, I find this to be always the simplest way to make a decision is like, and there's studies that prove this, like even the best traders in the world don't really stack up to simply adding a bunch of criteria that you find important and putting us a weighting on that criteria, right? So like, is there money in the space to be spent? How big of a problem is it? Right? Like how many meetings are held? How long are they? What's the content level of, you know, content quality? What's the uh, need for a formalized output? You know, like all of these little criteria that we put in, we put in weightages and we put in all the different, you know, legal sales, you know, all of the different things. And we came up with like, you know what? Sales is like number one because they can sell more. They can move on to other things. They forget. They, they're not the most organized people. Like we had all these criteria. It's like it scores the highest. Let's go after sales. Number two is like project management, right? And number three is like board meetings and like more formal. But there was just such a low uh, volume of those that like it was hard to break in. So that's when we really started to get going, I yeah. think. Um, but it was a little late in the game. Yeah. And so we had burned through, I think, about 12 months of our run, burn of our, of our raise. And we were very efficient with our cash. I mean, yeah. we weren't taking salaries that were high. I wanted to always leave six month buffer. And we were on our last like eight months, let's say. And I was like, all right, we need to spend the summer in the US because the customers here, they're not buying it, right? Like, I'm not going to sell to companies here online, but in the US, like I can create like a, a funnel. I can put marketing spend. I can get people in. Like it's crazy, but it's like two years after our initial idea, we finally start looking at, you know, the funnel and the onboarding and the, you know, sales cycles. And it takes time to get all those other pieces to become, you know, acclimated with them, I think, as an entrepreneur. It's a good point. I guess runway was short, but I'd love to, to let's say, sh for you to share that the story of, of like how you ended up being acquired. I mean, for us, you know, obviously the question on exits is a, is a common issue in the Middle East, but the fact is you are the uh, one of the few companies that have had an exit, let alone one from a U.S. Uh, company, you know, which I find super exciting and, and really an amazing accomplishment. So I was a observer of the story. I, didn't, I don't think I played much of a role in, in, uh, in connecting you to the acquirer, but at the same time, I, I thought it was just a, an amazing story. So maybe you can walk us through that. Yeah, I mean, it was part luck, part preparation, I think, honestly. Like, my dad always says, like, being lucky is just being ready to take advantage of an opportunity. And I think we managed to do that with, honestly, you guys on the fundraising side. Like, we had tried a million meetings with other people. But when we hit you, we hit it right and we built the right story and, and we, we built on that as well over six months to close the deal. It was very similar with Voicea, where it was a random message from Sharif, who was at 500, you know, at the time. And he sent us like, Hey, you know, there's this guy. He's, he's working on something very similar, very experienced in the U.S. He's going to be, uh, in Dubai. You know, he'd love to meet you. You know, it could be a potential for something much bigger. You know, I called them. He was like, you know, maybe, you know, they, they, they got a lot of money and, you know, they could acquire you. I don't know. Let's see. Let's see what it looks like. 
So that first meeting was, we had built so much. I mean, when you say like, you guys really did build a lot, like till today, the quality of what we built was actually very impressive. I mean, we built a web client that could host calls via WebRTC on desktop and mobile and capture notes, uh, transcribe live. Uh, we were going to add video recording. I mean, a lot of this was enabled by things like Twilio and Google, you know, uh, translate or Google transcription. But like, we also built like AI models eventually on top of that, that would try to identify, you know, keywords and sentences that would be automatically extracted from conversation. So at that point, they had nothing. They were like, we're thinking of building a search and mapping, you know, of calls. And uh, we wanted to be only on calls. I had no, no product, nothing. And it was kind of like, do I share? Do I not share? And I'm always of the version of like, I remember when I first didn't tell people my idea, someone told me like, all right, I give you a task, get someone to steal your idea. Then you know it's good and go out and build it. Because if you can convince someone to steal your idea, it means like there is something there and that's a good, that's a good sign. But winning is always about execution. And so we shared everything we were working on. This is our plan, this is what we're doing, even though they had nothing. And then when we went to the U.S. that summer, you know, I decided to check in and they were working on their prototype and it looked like something we had seen elsewhere, you know, and we had this mobile app and it was really clean. Like This was our fourth version of the mobile app. We didn't have transcription at the point it is today. We were using IBM and Google Watson. Watson yeah. yeah. And I mean... There's a, there's a, there's a change when you move from like 60, 70% accuracy to like 80, 90%. There's a change in people's opinion. So we were hiding the transcripts behind a search function. By the end of the summer, Google had launched their new transcription engine and you were putting it live and it was giving you proper, you know, feedback. I mean, this is not like calculated 80, 90%. This is more like it looks right. You know what I mean? And so we redefined this app and we made it all visual with the text live, which suddenly gave a wow factor to our app. It's not just recording in the background and you leave it. It's like, as you speak, it's capturing and it's doing pretty well. We added voice commands so that it activates note-taking on command rather than pressing the button. Now you're doing, okay, Eva, or, you know, at the time we had just keywords, action item, and it would open up a little text box and give you like a highlight, you know? And so you were creating your highlights as it goes. And our meetings became a lot more interesting. And um, we brought that in at the end of the summer when we realized like, look, we hadn't reached sales. And, you know, let's let's see what this could potentially be with, with Voice Here. We had an early meeting in the beginning of the summer. They weren't ready to talk. They kind of were finishing their prototype. By the time they finished their prototype, they knew they wanted a mobile app. And they, they kind of said we were a mobile app. You know, they didn't necessarily look at all of our features at the time. And they gave us an offer of, of how they would want to acquire us. It was a low offer. We felt like we had a lot more to offer than they had built. And they just had money. And we were, we were pretty strong-willed that we would get this done. You know, looking back on it, I think I did the math. Had we taken that offer, we would have had less upfront money probably some angrier investors. I think the investors would have done a little bit better. We would have done a little bit better as well. Um, but we weren't ready. We weren't ready. Um, and so we kind of let the conversation, we came back with like a, a really strong counteroffer. Looking <laughs> back on it, it's like pretty embarrassing counteroffer. And, and the founder of Voicia was second time, he's a second time founder. So founder of Voicia had sold his last company for a billion dollars, you know, exactly. to, so, so you're or half a billion dollars to Oracle and then ran 
and you know created a new business that went up to like a few billion dollars a year in run rate and had acquired maybe 10 15 companies no, so he's seasoned so he's, he's very well seasoned yeah, exactly. their whole team is like you know older guys that have done this before but we just we felt we were better yeah and then so they came back to you with an offer a few months later is that what, what so a few months later i think we were discussing you and i raising the next round we hadn't hit that traction you know metric how are we going to support this business? You know, things were looking like they would be flat. You know, you were going to support us, but like, how are we going to get others? How are we going to keep this going? What's what's next, right? Like, we're not going to do this in, in the UAE, or are we going to do it in the UAE? And where's our customers? And so, yeah, I, I kind of hail Mary another call with Omar. And honestly, the thing that saved us was we kept on developing the product. And at yeah. that time... They were working on a voice command. We had the voice command. We kept, app was there. The app had like 200,000 downloads because we got app of the day featured from all of our pushing with different like Google people or Apple folks. And eventually that paid off, right? And then I remember when we launched the Apple one, app of the day, it started to get downloaded in Germany and we started getting horrible reviews like, why no German? How can you have this with no German? And I was like, we never planned for German, but... Maybe we can make it work. We launched German, right, as a transcription service from Google. Boom. Started killing it in Germany, right? Started, so we actually had users. We actually had a base. But we didn't have dollars. We didn't launch sales. And so we had this momentum play. We had this feature play. And we had a really refined way of thinking about meetings that they didn't yet, right, from their experience. They had been doing it for nine months to a year. But they had $5 million first round before anything was launched. And they were closing in on another 15. And this was with Google Ventures, Microsoft Ventures, Salesforce Ventures, Ventures, Cisco Ventures. And the result is we managed to find something that made sense for everyone and we went for it. Yeah, I guess for me, it's like, what's the message there? It's like persistence through adversity, kind of continue building your product, continue building momentum. Then with momentum comes leverage and optionality for you. I think yeah. maybe there's other, other things, but that's how I'm... And also, no, there's persistence, but there's stubbornness that you shouldn't hold on to because persistence is only as good as, as its you know, actual results. And if you're getting re- you know, feedback and it's not moving the way you want, you need to readjust. So us going back and talking about the deal, us you know, realizing our deficiencies and knowing where we could use you know, some help, I think was a big part of it. I mean, we were happy. I mean, dude, honestly, what you accomplished there was amazing. And I, I know the amount of heartache that went into it both in, you know, at some point the relationships between the founders was tested. When offers come on the table, money's on the table, it can be the true color stand out. And I think you, you, you were definitely uh, protecting investors that are on your own interests in, in the process. How was the transition when you were bought? Like, what did you, what did you learn in that process of being kind of acquired to a certain extent into a new, a new entity? It was interesting. So right before we were bought, I was telling them, guys, we're really close to building a cool product. This is your last chance to build everything you think is relevant. Because from here on out, we will only build according to what they want. So let's get something cool, right, on all fronts that we will maybe, you know, port over. And we did. We, we started building those AI pieces um, around identification and whatever after being acquired. Before being acquired, that Ayush then carried over within the team. You know, Rishav stepped in to kind of really run the mobile works. And so we were integrating with what they did. But then we were also, they were borrowing a lot of what we did. And 
there's a bit of dichotomy in terms of the products, right? Because there's a mobile product and a web product. They serve different purposes, right? Ours was more in-person, but we had this online functionality. Theirs was online attend your meeting only, but they had a lot of cool like features and functionality. So it was a great marriage. In the beginning, you're like, okay, let's pick this, let's do this, let's take that. And there was no like product designer at the time. And I was very design oriented and, and focused around UX and UI. And so kind of filled that void and it worked really well. But then eventually, I think we really more fit their mold, obviously, than they fit ours, course, right? Yeah. And they were very business focused. They were very tech focused. So they built their own transcription engine. Our AI prediction algorithms were thrown away eventually because they weren't very accurate. They need a lot more R&D. And they were very much, as a leadership team, what is going to create value in this space, right? Is it going to be revenue? And they tried to test that very soon. Right after we acquired, we launched revenue within three to four months. And when we realized like revenue was good, but it wasn't net profitable, it was going to take time to break people's habits from meetings. They quickly pivoted into like the other ways to make money that I'm not used to, which is like partnerships. So working on Cisco resellers and embedding this into Cisco through an API and putting it into, you know, different you know, Amazon as well was another one. We were working with the Alexa team and understanding if this can fit in Chime and does our transcription engine outperform these other ones. And so they went really deep on the transcription quality. Eventually, honestly, like the package was acquired, but the real value was the IP they had generated in creating a higher quality transcription engine than Google was performing for meetings. So I guess the message there, because they got acquired again, yeah, exactly, by, by Cisco, right? And now you're at Cisco, which I would love to maybe to continue going down that thread. It sounds like the learnings there was understanding where value is being created. So you started, like you said, revenue, and then you realized that actually it's the IP, let's build an IP. And what are the learnings that you have in that process of the second acquisition that happened, right? From going from voice yeah. to Cisco. And I think that's interesting is like, we were acquired for product and team and Cisco acquired Voicea for really the, the IP, as you're mentioning. And it's really interesting. Now I sit on the acquisition integration team um, at Cisco. Part like, yeah, at Cisco. It's a part acquisition strategy, part like post-acquisition, how we get this whole, you know, combined product or category to work. And it's very interesting to see what, you know, not many people get to that stage where they're talking acquisition with like a corporate or, the, you know, who's going to buy you in the end? It's going to be a corporate. And why do they buy you, right? And there are different criteria. There's revenue criteria. There's entering a space criteria. There's IP criteria. And I, I was a little bit naive in that sense. And now I think I'm a lot more seasoned in understanding positioning of an acquisition and what you're really trying to build. And I encourage a lot of people. I mean, there is this whole like religion around product first, usage first, when people love your thing, then it's going to sell, you know, and that's what we were adopting at, at wrap up and that we kept doing it and testing. And what it's like at the end of the day, there's a lot of drawbacks to that approach. You know, sometimes rough following the money is another one. Sometimes building for, you know, assets and acquisition potentials is a third way of doing things. Obviously their network and access to liquidity, both on the fundraising side and on the exit side, like who's going to buy a company in the region? These are some of the questions I now start to ask myself. Most of the biggest acquisitions are just regional uh, geographic area expansion acquisitions. Yeah, That's it. Yeah. They're market share yes. of the region acquisitions. So when you're building something really groundbreaking, you really start to, and 
think through who's going to buy that in the end and bring them into your process a little bit earlier, right? Yeah. So that's another thing they did. They got Cisco Ventures. They got Salesforce Ventures. They got, you know, okay, we don't have access to those people, but at least we can talk to them. Maybe we can have conversations. And so I think it's very important to look at a broad spectrum when you're thinking exit. And I think it's important to think about it. It's like this forbidden fruit that you're not allowed to talk about in a VC meeting. Like, oh, I don't want to, you know, get acquired. Eventually, I want to get acquired, but like, I'm going to focus on the product, you know, or I'm going to focus on the team and the other things will fall into place. Like, no, you might need to figure that out earlier than you expect. And you don't have time to adjust. Yeah, I think, look, I think exits for us have always been like, if you build a profitable, let's say, long-term sustainable business, you'll find buyers. The other flip side is you don't want a founder who's, who's like, oh, I'm going to sell this business in two or three years. It's generally not the type you want someone who's in it for the long haul. Like that's the only thing on the on the VC perspective. But when you look at like you know your journey, because that sounds like I think a ton of insights that have been had. But what was the hardest moment or moments that you had to experience and endure in that whole process from start to finish? Definitely when when at the end of the summer, sales never came through. I had spent three months away from home. My wife came and spent some time with me in New York. The system that I had built that was going to accomplish all these things was just crumbling left, right, and center, right? You know, the, the person that was working with us for from day one, product design, product manager, you know, wanted to leave. The founders, now the tech guys are looking at the CEO and saying, you can't sell, we're building everything you want. You know, mm-hmm. what's the deal? This is not how it works. And, you know, in the early stages, they were 19, 20, and I'm having the investor conversations because I'm, you know, more seasoned and doing those things. And now they're, you know, puffing their chest up and thinking, hey, you know, this guy's running us into the ground. Like when things don't go well, things don't go well. And it it really starts to crumble around you. So I think the hardest part was under all of that tension and, and premise, keeping a straight face to someone like Omar and even yourself, like when we're talking the next round, like, cause if we don't sell, like we already lost our opportunity. It's not likely that we're going to get another one. So if we don't sell, we need to continue. If we're going to continue, you know, what's in it? What, what am I selling? Am I really going to continue? This was a big question because the team, the way it was working, the way we were functioning was disjointed. And so I would say that was the toughest part is like looking at myself straight in the eye and say, okay, I've been doing this for two years. It's not reaching, you know, I did a lot. I've yeah. learned an incredible amount, but it's not doing what I, what it should be doing to be a successful business. Should I give it a final, you know, EMP charge and like push forward or, or do we cut the cord? And I remember before any of this, I told, I told the co-founders, I'm going to close the business. If we don't sell, I'm going to close the business. I'm not going to fundraise. Uh, I remember that journey with the founder, the, the whole dynamics there. But I respect that choice if it was if it was to come to that. But I mean, you hustled your way to. Yeah, I think it was a little bit of like, if you don't have a floor, you'll make it. You know, you, you accepted that. I accepted like this is it's boom or bust. Yeah. And, you know, it worked out. If it didn't, I think I would be just as comfortable with my decision. Honestly, I know it's easier to say, you know, after winning or, 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 or you know, succeeding. But really, that was the hardest part is like accepting that I wasn't going to push something forward that wasn't working. And taking what I could from the situation. Yeah. I think that's very few founders actually are living in, not attached to their, to their company enough to make that choice. You know, some people stay hustling, believing in it for years. So I guess, okay, the, you know, would you have done anything differently if you look back? No, no. I never, I never feel that way in my life. Okay. Great. No regrets, huh? 
Yeah, I've known you for long enough to know that. <laughs> so I guess, you know, a couple of, you know, I think of like, if you look at the investor ecosystem today or generally in your path of raising funds, I think most founders are typically first-time founders here. There are very few that have done it before. And I always ask the question, like, what do you look for? and What, what do you think makes a good investor? It's a valuable question, right? Because it's like, depends what type of founder you're talking about. You know, I always found you and, and the Beko team to be very founder-friendly, very understanding, you know, quite open to what we were doing. I probably managed the message more so than I needed to, given how open and, and clean you guys were about the whole situation. I think that's very needed in an investor because the entrepreneur goes through so much and there's only so many uh, inputs that they can take on without like losing their way, let's say. Yeah. Um, and I think you guys did a really good job of nurturing, nurturing the founders. Um, someone who can nurture, someone who can who's understand and who can, who can take a step back. The other thing that I think is super important is like experience. A lot of that needs to be a little bit firsthand experience. Mm -hmm. Like I think the, the region needs a lot more exits and a lot more, whatever, even people that have failed to get that regurgitation, that recycling of insights, and, in, knowledge insights and knowledge and information. That's what you get in San Francisco, really, at the end of the day. That's all it is. It's like a bunch of people that have tried and failed and learned exactly. and tried and failed and learned. And so the the VC side is still nascent to that whole like adding value. You know, I think 500 well at the time was really focused on marketing and funnel. And they, they like, I remember Sharif said, it's now he's like, what is this crap? Like, don't give me a, diagram of you know the markets like go and tell me what's your funnel how many people did you reach out to how many like how much did you spend where's your your kpis and i just remember like that one hour session with shari badawi was, was like 10 times more impactful than you know all the meetings i had been having with all the different people so there is a little bit of like been there done that that needs to be applied for you to to be able to give that advice i love that i love that the sort of the not only are you recycling capital, but it's recycling like insights and experience that has to happen. And I think it's happening, but at the time when we were investing, I yeah. think that, was, that wasn't the case. Who's a, who's a leader that you look up to and you're like, yeah, this is someone I respect globally, like Iraq and why? Like, what, those are some of the things I think through. Well, I think we got super lucky with the acquisition because I think Omar Tawakon, who was the you know, founder of Voicea and, um, and eventually like, who acquired us, it's probably one of the most impressive humans. I've met from a, from a, like, there's very few people that can straddle the line. I've never met the, this kind of person, to be honest, like that can be universally loved, but also commanding and able to lead people in a direction, but not in a, an imposing way. He's very consensus driven and yet he's not. Um, and so you always leave the conversation feeling like you've won or, or it's, it's, it's mutually, you know, acceptable. Even when nine times out of 10, you'll, you'll go in his direction. And he's very humble, very respectful. He's done so much. That's more on a personal note, right? When you think of like a leader and a mentor. It's a really well-described quality though. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's crazy, but like I get in meetings now in Cisco and I get someone saying like, I love Omar. It's like that, that term is being thrown around so much when I've been around him that it's like, it's incredible. Like on a more like, on a global basis and whatnot. Like I've always respected Stuart Butterfield of Slack. Um, maybe that's throwing back to my like product first, yeah. you know, like SaaS, SaaS like play. But like he's he's more of a philosophy background. He's very thoughtful 
and it's more about the like the reason the raison d'être of doing things yeah. than it is about like the actual thing he's doing and and so um and he's been incredibly successful in applying that that way of thinking but i haven't worked with him you know so it's different so what is it for rami now like now you're in cisco it sounds like you have a pretty cool role to play on a global level do you think about it being an entrepreneur again I mean, even though your role is kind of, like I said, kind of remote. Yeah, I, I think it goes back full circle to like my original like thought, which is like, I'm lazy by definition because I want the highest ROI for my input. Not because I'm selfish, but because I think it's the most efficient way of living life, right? An effective way of applying myself. I'm quite disparate. I have a lot of you know, scattered thoughts, but I can apply them to many different things in one go. So I've realized now that I've, I had some capital, I've done some investing, some advising that I'm quite keen to uh, continue in that route because I think it can apply my knowledge and learning to a wider array of, of issues. But also, I get to abstract myself from the nitty-gritty. Now, there's a bit of tug and pull there, right? If I stay too long outside the, the, the you know, let's say nitty-gritty, then I'm not going to be able to add much value at some point. So I think I'll, I'll oscillate between the two. But I love being an investor and advisor now, and I love talking to other startups that are going through a lot of the similar challenges that we went through. I guess now maybe to end is more like purpose and, and reflection. Like, do you ever think about like purpose now that you've made this accomplishment? You've had an impact. You have a, you have a child now as well. And we've talked about this back and forth, you know, but you're enough for investing now. But how does that translate for you? And has it changed as you've been an entrepreneur now you're a father and all these other things? Do you ever think about it? Yeah, I mean, for sure. When you've reached certain milestones, you, know, milestones, you, you think about... But for now, I would say it's about really sending the ladder down, as some people say. Like, like giving back. Giving back my time and thoughts. And, and a lot of the startups I've had meetings with or advise, like I never invest in or I never you know, take part in, but... I try my best to, you know, always take on those types of meetings and, and share information. I do think there's a larger plan that I will eventually get to as I reach maybe certain scale. Maybe it needs more capital. I want to equip people to, to, to be able to like maximize their abilities really at the end of the day. Um, but I also want to be a part of amazing, cool ideas. So that, that's investing advising for now. But I think in the future, I've always had this thought process of like reinventing the way people are learning about. And it's funny because I'm not even a developer, but equipping people for the new and modern age of, of like, you know, they have all these coding boot camps that are doing incredibly well in the US. That's one of those things that I like, I would do just because I think it has a huge impact. They only take money from when you make money, when you get a job, when exactly. you get a job or whatever. Um, and I think the region has so much intellect and it's, it's, it's like suffering. Yeah. Describe that for me. What do you think the opportunity is when you say the region has so much intellect? Like what excites you about it? Cause you're still here, right? And your company's Cisco, you're, you, you know, you could easily be in the US. I like the concept of a, of a smaller pond and, and succeeding in a smaller pond because you're a lot closer to, the movers and shakers and the things that happen. Like here you can really reach important levels of, of government, of life, and, and small steps in your network um, and, and if you know have an impact. The the thing I like about the region though is like, I mean, look, being Lebanese and seeing how devastated Lebanon is today. I mean, it's it's one of the saddest things how much the Lebanese 
grasp to how successful we are outside. You know, like this guy is Lebanese. I always said, like, you're not famous until the Lebanese claim you're, you're Lebanese, right? You're not successful until they claim something from you. But at the end of the day, they, they, they do have this ability to go and be successful within systems that exist. A little bit because we stay outside the system and kind of tread the line, but also because there's core value, I think, in, in you know, both the, the quality of people, the quality of thought, the depth of, you know, what they're trying to do. I would love to maximize that, not just for Lebanon, but for the region. I think one of the ways is to cultivate skills, technical skills, hardcore technical skills that the world is in, in great demand of and that remote work is going to move, you know, to wherever the best and cheapest place is. Um, we work extensively with Ukraine in our startup and uh, they just match the best like I mean, they weren't super cheap, but they weren't, you know, super expensive. And they were the best engineers. And I just thought, like, I've met so many brilliant people in Lebanon working on brilliant things. And it's not just Lebanon, obviously, it's Jordan, Egypt. You know, the whole region uh, has incredibly intelligent people that I've met and worked with. The canvas is not fully formed. You know, we've got great painters, but we're missing the paint and the canvas. And I think it'd be interesting to be here to create that. First of all, it's been an amazing journey with you. Uh, I still will never forget the moment you, we had you pitch in, our, in, in the office and backing you and the journey. Man, it was a learning process for me. Let me tell you that. Like some of the challenges you went through and innovation, like I told you, you know, uh, it was mutually beneficial, but also just I think the connection is clear, right? You're on your way to some, well, you've already had an impact. Um, and I think the, the way you're thinking about it, it sounds like you're going to have a new bigger one in the future. And we're friends, man. So uh, I don't want to get um, too sentimental, but uh, but I think I th- thank you, man, for sharing. And uh, I hope everyone enjoyed enjoyed learning. Yeah, but I hope everyone understands. Like there is a genesis. There's always a a a person that puts you in a position to do the things that you do. And I think I've mentioned this to yeah, you. Yeah. But I, I'm I'm re-mentioning it, even though it's you're gonna probably cut this out or something at the end. But like, honestly, like the chance you took on us at that time, you know, started. I've had maybe two people that really changed my life in that sense. It was you and Omar at the end of that journey. And um, thank you, man. Both hold very similar qualities in terms of like respect and honesty and looking for the consensus-driven, you know, way of getting to the right answers and, and being very nurturing towards them. Man, I'm definitely going to cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. Cheers, bud. All right. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you were able to take away some valuable insights on this episode. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast listening app and please don't forget to leave us a review and share it with your friends. The Middle East has a new story to tell and this is From Mina to the World.